You know, the selfie has been around for over 20 years now. It went viral in 2004 when the iPhone 4 first introduced the front-facing camera. Suddenly, it was now easy to take a photo of yourself and let the world know what you, yourself, and I were doing. Hashtag me. But long before selfie technology was invented, the false teachers in Corinth were also focused on themselves. They arrogantly boasted of their exploits. Paul boasted too, but there was a difference. The false teachers boasted intangible successes. Whereas when Paul spoke of his credentials and the proof of his calling, he pointed not to the stars in his crown, but to the scars on his body. He boasted in all that he had suffered for Jesus' sake. The proof of his legitimacy was his scars. You see, the false teachers in Corinth, they would have snapped selfies of themselves riding in their limos or preaching in their designer sneakers or addressing packed auditoriums or laying hands on the sick or collecting offerings or posing with celebrities. Whereas Paul's selfies were different. As a matter of fact, here's a look at Paul's ancient Instagram right here. He's in the middle of the ocean, in the midst of a shipwreck. Sharks are circling. Hashtag spreading the gospel. Or he's holding his camera from under a pile of stones after he's been brutally pelted. Hashtag rocking for Jesus. Or he snaps a selfie in chains behind prison bars. Hashtag prison again, or he's at a riot caused by his preaching, hashtag still worth it, or he relaxes after another of his missionary journeys, hashtag ministry is not for sissies. See, Paul proved his sincerity not by outward trappings of ministerial success, but by pointing to his scars. In fact, he posts a verbal selfie at the end of chapter 11. There he boasts of a strange experience he had at the beginning of his ministry, his humiliating escape from Damascus. He ignited so much opposition that he was forced to exit the city at night, over the wall, in a basket. I mean, what a letdown. Paul begins his ministry as a real basket case. And yet he also experienced a real pick-me-up. He was let down in a basket, but he was caught up into heaven. And in chapter 12, Paul continues boasting of his God-given revelations and the thorn that accompanied them. He says in verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. In other words, the boasting that I've been doing is not something that I like to do, but it's necessary. See, Paul would rather be talking about Jesus rather than himself, but personal attacks from critics had demanded a defense. He says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, at the end of chapter 11, Paul spoke of beatings and stonings and imprisonments. But now he goes from collisions to visions. He was beat up for the cause of Christ, but he was picked up by Christ himself. You need to understand this about Paul. The Apostle Paul 
was a mystic. That means he received spiritual illumination. He lived with his feet firmly planted on the ground, but Paul always kept his head and heart in the heavens. And God spoke to him often in supernatural ways. It reminds me of the day the king's son was born. The king ordered his royal gardener to go to work cultivating the most magnificent flower ever grown. It would be the prince's gift to his bride when the time came for the boy to marry. The gardener began many years of experimentation and crossbreeding until he finally developed his masterpiece, the rainbow rose. Well, on the day of their wedding, the couple visited the royal garden for the bride to pick out her rose. But when she stopped before the rainbow rose, she picked the rose beside it, an ordinary rose. The gardener was stunned. What was wrong? Why had she picked a common flower over his masterpiece? Well, it turns out the new queen had discovered the rainbow rose's one flaw. It had no scent, no smell. Everyone else was so enamored by its beauty that they had ignored its imperfection. But the queen hadn't, for she was blind. And in a similar way, Paul was not so enamored with what his eyes saw, nor so caught up in the physical and in the tangible that he missed out on the scent of God's Spirit. He was sensitive to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. On countless occasions, Paul was given divine guidance and supernatural assistance You remember on the day he was converted, he saw the Lord there on the road to Damascus. He had a vision. At Troas, he saw the vision of a man from Macedonia calling for him to cross the Aegean Sea and preach the gospel. During the storm at sea, an angel appeared to Paul with assurance and instruction. Hey, certainly we need to read our Bible for guidance. But God will often confirm and even augment his word through supernaturally discerned whispers. You recall in 1 Kings 19, God spoke to Elijah, not in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, but in a still, small voice. And we need to be listening for that still, small voice. Hey, be sure you confirm your dreams and your visions and your angelic appearances, but be open to them. Don't just look, but smell as well. Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, now Paul is so uncomfortable talking about himself, he's speaking now in the third person. This was a common way among Hebrew rabbis to deflect the glory from themselves. He says, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now here Paul elaborates on one of the spiritual experiences that God had granted him. Since we're uncertain as to when Paul penned 2 Corinthians, it's really impossible for us to pinpoint 14 years earlier. It could have been toward the end of his preparation for ministry in his hometown of Tarsus or during his stay in Antioch before launching his first missionary journey or perhaps on that journey in the town of Lystra. You recall Lystra was the scene in Acts chapter 14 of Paul's stoning. 
An angry mob had pelted Paul with rocks and left him for dead. Notice how he describes his state at the time of the vision. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. In other words, I'm not sure if I was dead or alive. This could have happened to him in Lystra. What we know for sure is that early in Paul's ministry, God prepared him with this vision. See, God knew that to withstand fierce persecutions on earth, Paul would need a profound sense of the glories of heaven. Paul says that he was caught up. The same Greek word used to describe the rapture. I mean, could it be that God arranged a mini rapture for Paul? His body was whisked away to heaven, then brought back to earth? Or could it be that he was transported spiritually to the third heaven while his body lay dead, left in limbo under that pile of stones? This would have been a true out-of-body experience. But what impressed Paul, though, was what he saw and heard. God gave him a glimpse of the third heaven. Now, heaven number one is the earth's atmosphere. Heaven number two is outer space. But the third heaven is out of this world. It's the spiritual dimension. See, Paul was caught up into God's very presence, his throne room. You know, modern technology enables man to travel to the first two heavens on his own. But no one can reach the third heaven without God's transport and most importantly, his permission. Apparently, God took Paul to heaven. And Paul repeats his astonishing testimony in verse 3. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I love the word that Paul uses here to describe God's throne room. He calls it paradise. Paradise is a Persian word which refers to a walled garden. You see, wealthy desert sheiks would dig deep wells. And then they would import luscious flowers and shade trees and spice bushes to plant around the spring. And then they would enclose it all within the walls, within stone walls. It became a private and protected oasis. And this is the picture the Bible paints of heaven. You remember Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven, my friends, is an oasis. Forget about heaven as a sterile white hospital corridor or a barge of fluffy, puffy clouds floating in thin air. Oh, no. Heaven is a garden. It's full of lush greenery and thick shade and cool streams and delicious fruit and tantalizing smells. Tahiti and Hawaii combined can't touch heaven. Heaven will be a new and better garden of Eden. You know, it's mind-boggling to realize that Paul was given the same privilege as the first man, Adam. He walked with God in the garden. He heard mysteries explained by God himself. Paul had literally been to heaven, yet he remained silent about it for 14 years. And to me, this is the real miracle, Paul's restraint. Imagine he didn't jump on the talk show circuit or publish a book 
or launch his own website, paulinparadise.org. Nor did he use his heavenly experience in his fundraising letter. What Paul saw and heard at the throne of God was too sacred. It was too holy to put into earthly words. This is what makes me suspicious of pompous preachers today who claim similar experiences. If the apostle Paul remained silent about heaven for 14 years, if he felt that feeble human language could never do heaven justice, why do people today feel free to flaunt their visions and their revelations? When you really see the glory of God, friends, you are hushed by it. You're speechless. God takes your breath away. Reminds me of the 85-year-old couple who were married 65 years. They both lived in good health, mainly due to the wife's interest in diet and exercise. Well, when they reached heaven, Peter took them to their luxurious mansion. As they oohed and awed, the old man asked Peter how much this was all going to cost him. Well, it's free, Peter replied. This is heaven. In addition, this home was on a championship golf course. The man asked Peter, he said, what are the greens fees? Peter again replied, this is heaven. You play for free here. Well, next, when they went to the clubhouse, they saw this lavish buffet. How much to eat? Peter was getting impatient with this fellow. He said, you don't get it. It's heaven. It's free. Well, he started, it all started to seep in for the old man. He asked again, though. He said, where are the low fat and the low cholesterol tables? Peter lectured him. He said, man, that's the best part. You can eat as much as you like of whatever you like, and you never get fat. You never get sick. This is heaven. Well, that was it. I mean, the old man, he went off in a rage. He was angry with his wife. After Peter calmed him down, he asked what was wrong. He turned to his wife of 65 years, and he scolded her. He said, this is all your fault. If it weren't for those blasted bran muffins, I could have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> hey, when we arrive in heaven, we won't long for anything we've left behind on earth. Heaven will be heavenly. We may never get as vivid a picture of heaven as Paul did, but God reveals our future glory in his word. For he knows that before we begin our ministry, we need a vision of how it will end. It's hard to endure the rigors of serving God now without a view of the rewards we'll receive then. Well, Paul continues in verse 5. He says, Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. A humble Paul was far more comfortable discussing his low points when he had to cry out to God than he was his high points when God spoke to him in revelations. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul was leery of inflating his own pride. He would have never gone down this path of boasting had the Corinthians not doubted his ministry. And God knew of Paul's very human tendency to become proud or puffed up. This is our tendency as well, isn't it? See, this is why Paul, why God provided Paul a safeguard. 
a safeguard against his pride. He says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Unless I become too proud, God gave me a thorn. Notice Paul doesn't identify his thorn in the flesh. But all kinds of theories have been advanced. Migraines and epilepsy and malaria and even a mother-in-law. Just kidding. But for me, the most plausible explanation for Paul's thorn in the flesh was an infectious eye disease. A disease that would flare up from time to time, especially whenever he moved into warmer climates. It could be that the blinding light on the road to Damascus had weakened his eyes. And he picked up an infection which caused his eyes to scab over. You know, when Paul writes to the people of Lystra and their neighbors, the Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 15, he speaks of their love toward him that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to Paul if it had been possible. Apparently he had a problem with his eyes while he was there. In Galatians 6, verse 11, he talks about the large letters which with which he had written his letter. Possibly another indication that he was having a problem with his vision. And so he had to write in these big letters. The Greek word translated thorn, it means a stake or a dagger. A person suffering from trachoma develops a pus over their eye that causes their lashes to become hard and brittle. And at times, they even dig into the eye. If you've ever had a scratch on your cornea, you can imagine the pain. It feels like a knife or a thorn thrust into your eye. All we know for sure about Paul's thorn is that it didn't go away. He writes in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. You remember Jesus too prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane that the cup would pass from him. Perhaps Paul was here modeling Jesus' prayer. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a spirit when a spiritual with a spiritual blessing comes a tendency towards pride. And to protect against it, God will often plant a thorn in our lives to keep us humble. It's a reminder of how desperately we need God. It's painful, but given the dangers of pride, it's worth it. See, a thorn keeps driving us to our knees, and we need that. Even though Paul prayed three times, God refused to remove the thorn. A weakened Paul learned that the greatest strength was found not in himself, but in God's sufficiency. Paul's thorn kept him dependent upon God's all-sufficient grace in a way that he never would without it. You know, Roy Campanella was an all-star catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers before he lost the use of his arms and legs in a terrible automobile accident. Roy was paralyzed. But Roy Campanella had an amazing attitude. He was inspired early in his recovery by a plaque 
hanging on the wall of the New York City hospital where he was treated. Countless times, Roy would roll his wheelchair past that plaque. One day, he stopped to read it, and then he read it again. Here's what was engraved on the plaque. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. I am among, I am among men the most richly blessed. And this was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Rather than grow mad that God had failed to remove his thorn in the flesh, Paul learned to view it as a gift from God. We too need to learn to rejoice in our weakness. For that's our opportunity for God to demonstrate his great strength. Paul finishes his thoughts on the thorn in verse 9. He says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. Can you imagine? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are always stronger leaning on the Lord than we are standing tall and proud in our own strength. And then he says in verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. The Corinthians should have appreciated Paul. Instead, they had forced him to boast and extol his own merits. The foolish Corinthians had been proud of the wrong teachers. They exalted the phony men of God. They called them eminent apostles, or literally super apostles. And yet in no way were they superior to the apostle Paul. For he continues, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. While Paul was among the Corinthians, he had worked miracles. God had used him to do supernatural things. The church in Corinth had seen God confirm Paul's apostleship. They should have appreciated him. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. And here Paul's pen dips in sarcasm. The only thing the super apostles did that Paul didn't do was take the Corinthians' money. Paul is saying, forgive me for not ripping you off. You remember while in Corinth, Paul worked a secular job. And he took financial support from other churches. So that he could minister free of charge to the Corinthians. Paul didn't want pleas for money to cast a cloud over his motives while he was with them. He says in verse 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, 
For I do not seek yours, but you. Paul is again coming to Corinth. And like previously, he's not after their money. He's not after anything they possess. He's just after their hearts. He loves them and he wants them to love Jesus. Realize, as you go to churches, you'll find two approaches to ministry. Some pastors feel that the congregation exists for them. They'll never say it or admit it, but in a thousand subtle ways it gets communicated. The church is there to build the pastor's dreams and to finance his empire. Whereas there are pastors who serve and love the people. They exist for the congregation, not vice versa. And this latter attitude was Paul's. He writes, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. You see, I'm a, as a father, I'm the one who scrapes and saves and sacrifices for my children. My, my kids aren't sacrificing for me. I mean, my kids are now doing the same for their kids. It's the parents who lay up and pay up for the kids. Which reminds me of the children who chipped in to purchase their dad a great Father's Day present. One of the siblings suggested, said, let's give dad a gift that we all can get something out of. And so they bought him a wallet. See, Christian service is equal to spiritual parenthood. It's about what you can give, not what you get. A person gets involved in ministry because they're willing to spend their life to see other folks grow and mature as a parent does for their kids. This is why Paul continues. He says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul would waste his life away, exhaust his resources, burn up his energy, sacrifice his health to see the Corinthians flourish. And again, this is the heart of a true pastor. When you find such a man, you need to support him and follow him. And yet that wasn't the Corinthians' attitude. Paul groans. He says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Like ungrateful children who were oblivious to the love of their parents, the church at Corinth took Paul's selfless and sacrificial ministry for granted. And it's sad for churches to do the same today. Often the loving leader goes underappreciated while the greedy egotist gets propped up and supported. Doesn't make sense. Verse 16. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer was no. Paul and his associates had been above board in their dealings with the Corinthians. He says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? In other words, not once were they mistreated by Paul or his pals. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. The only motivation in Paul's ministry was edification or the building up spiritually of these Corinthians. Verse 20, for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. 
Paul is afraid that his next visit to Corinth is going to get ugly. He's going to find the people in sin, and he's going to be forced to rebuke them rather harshly. Here's what he fears he'll find. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. These are the opposite of love. The Corinthians lack love, and Paul may have to point that out in person, he tells them. Chapter 12 closes. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. You know, this word translated mourn, it refers to the mourning for the dead. Paul is saying he doesn't want his next visit to Corinth to be a funeral for a dead church. Chapter 13 begins. This will be the third time I am coming to you. And he's preparing now for his upcoming visit. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. This was a quote from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. You remember, under the law of Moses, two or three eyewitnesses were needed to convict a person of a crime. And here Paul is telling the Corinthians that he's mounting his case. He's heard of their rebellion. Now he's coming to see for himself. He's basically saying, ready or not, here I come. When he reaches Corinth, he'll confront his accusers face to face, and he'll finally put an end to their lies. He says, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Sounds like a threat to me. And it is a threat. The word translated spare means to spare in battle. Paul is declaring war on these false teachers. Verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. You see, Paul had been criticized for being weak in appearance, unpolished in speech, unassuming in his mannerisms. He wasn't as flamboyant as the critics would have liked. See, his enemies were impressed by the gaudy rather than the godly. And Paul straightens them out by pointing to Jesus. Jesus, too, appeared weak. On the cross, he was the antithesis of what this world considers successful and pleasing and pretty. Jesus shattered worldly criteria. He proved that physicality can never measure spirituality. And since appearances can be deceiving, Paul suggests that the Corinthians evaluate themselves. For they too may not be what they appear to be. He says in verse 5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And here is a profound truth. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you are one. Hey, just because you're born in a barn doesn't make you a cow. 
And just because you walk into a Dunkin' Donut doesn't make you a police officer. And just because you attend church doesn't make you a Christian. Just wearing Christian t-shirts or using Christian lingo or playing Toby Mac on Spotify or quoting Bible verses doesn't make you a Christian. Paul concedes that some of the Corinthians had been pulling the wool over people's eyes. They were even fooling themselves. Once a mom heard her little girl pray, Now I lay me down to rest. I pray I pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. The truth is, when we die, we will receive our final grade. And it's a pass or fail score, friends. Either you embrace Jesus as Lord or you don't. You might resist him or you might just ignore him, but both receive failing grades. My mom sang in the choir while we were growing up, and she played the organ for our church before she ever committed her life to Jesus. She was just a good church girl. She wasn't a Christian. I recall one night at a revival meeting, suddenly the music stopped during the altar call. Mom had ceased playing. I looked down, where did mom go? All of a sudden, I saw her walking to the altar in her choir robe. She was heavily involved in the church at the time, yet she realized that she wasn't a Christian. She became one that night. As a kid, I was baptized three times, thinking that I was a Christian. And yet I'd never surrendered my will and my knee to Jesus Christ. I'd never bowed my knee to the Lord Jesus. It can happen, you see. We profess, but we don't possess. Sadly, hell will be shoulder to shoulder with church folk. This is why Paul says, examine your heart. Examine yourself. I read of a young man who enrolled in a graduate school. But when the official sent off for his college transcripts, there was a mix-up. People at the college recalled the young man. In fact, he'd been quite popular on campus. But there was no record of him ever being enrolled. His files showed no classes, no credits, no grades. When they contacted him to clear up the confusion, he confessed. He had taken the money his parents had sent for his four years in college, but had never officially enrolled. He went to class but he audited all of the courses. He attended college, yet never was truly a part. And I'm afraid that is exactly what we're going to find out about a lot of people who've come to church their whole life. Oh, they attended class, but they had never really bowed their knee to Jesus. They had never truly enrolled in the Christian life. They were auditing the Christian life. If so, if that's you, trust me, you'll get no credit. You know, it's been calculated that by the time a person finishes college, they will have taken 2,600 tests and quizzes. But there's one exam we all need to take. Examine your heart. Test your faith, Paul says, to see if Christ truly dwells in you. This is the most vital test you'll ever take. And I want to help you out here. I've put together several scriptures. You can read them later. Romans 8 verse 9, 
1 John 3, verse 14, 1 John 2, verse 29, and 1 John 5, verse 4. And I've constructed for us an SAT test, a salvation acquisition test. Here are four questions that you should ask yourself to see if you're truly saved. First, do you sense the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Is there an inner witness inside your heart? Second, do you love other believers? Is there an outer witness or a camaraderie with God's family? Third, do you practice righteousness? For what God puts in us eventually wiggles its way out. A cleansed heart ends up producing a changed and purified life. And fourth, are you overcoming the world? Have you gained a newfound motivation and reason for living that helps you resist temptation and take a stand for Jesus? If you're in Christ, the answer to all four questions will be yes. Not perfection, but there will at least be some progression. You know, it's difficult to live the Christian life without knowing for sure that you are one. God wants us to examine ourselves so we'll have assurance of our salvation. Paul adds, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. He hopes that his visit provides him and the Corinthians evidence of each other's faith. Now, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. In essence, Paul says, I'll take no joy in saying, I told you so. Paul hopes that he finds the Corinthians after they've taken heed to his letters and put away the carnality among them. He says, I'll be happy if I appear wrong in my criticisms of you. He hopes that they've cleaned up their act. He says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul doesn't mind looking weak if it meant the church was strong. It was not about him, it was about them. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. The word translated complete here means fully fitted, thoroughly equipped. Paul wants the Corinthians to have everything they need to live victoriously in Jesus. And this is also God's desire for us. And then he says in verse 10, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness. According to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. I mean, this letter, the fact he wrote a letter had enabled Paul to say hard things to the Corinthians. You know, often in-person encounters become too emotionally charged. Words get said that shouldn't. But via a letter, Paul had been able to write clearly. And the Corinthians had been able to digest his rebuke before responding. It was a good means of conveying his heart. Verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Professor Michael Christian of Boston College is the author of two books on the subject of kissing. But since the release of his second book, The Art of Kissing, 
The good professor says that his love life has gone downhill. Christian explains what's happened to him. Now when I kiss a woman, she usually responds, you wrote the book on kissing and that's the best you can do? Oh, the problems with being an expert in kissing. In his books, though, Christian says that there's about 25 types of kisses. I'm not sure if Michael Christian includes the holy kiss in his list. But Paul tells the rest of us Christians to greet each other with a holy kiss. Once I had a fellow, he came up after church one Sunday, no kidding, came up after church one Sunday. And he told me that he really loved our church. He was first attracted to our church because of all the hugging that went on. He says, it's wonderful. After church, everybody just hugs each other. He told me that he'd been walking around the room hugging all the good-looking women. That kind of hug is not a holy hug. We had a further conversation. You see, in Paul's day, a kiss was a cultural greeting, like a handshake today. Perhaps if Paul were writing to us, he would say, greet each other with a holy handshake. The point is, is to exchange warm, sincere greetings toward one another. Not overtures weighted down with ulterior and selfish and lustful motives. Hey, expressions of acceptance and togetherness are important reminders for Christians. We shouldn't take each other for granted. The fact that we're all here, the fact that we're still serving the Lord, needs to be celebrated, doesn't it? Just keep it holy, okay? Paul finishes his letter. All the saints greet you. The believers in Macedonia who were with Paul sends their best. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Notice this reference to the Trinity. All three members of the Godhead join to conclude this letter. Paul ends with a blessing. May the Savior's grace and the Father's love and the Holy Spirit's presence be with us all. May we live every minute of every day in His grace and in His love and in his presence. Amen and amen. And there we have 2 Corinthians.